0: Everyone, this is Caleb, and I'm so excited that you've decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. And today I am honored to be joined by Bill Hathaway, who has authored or co authored a brand new book called The Integration of Psychology and Christianity. And we're going to get into that uh, in a little bit here. But before we do that, if this happens to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner podcast, I want to let you know. That. I'm so excited that you've decided to join us today, really here on the podcast. We want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations, because if you're like me, you've probably gone throughout life and you have realized that you can't talk with anyone about anything or everything, and it because of the response that you make it back towards um, towards you for bringing up the topic, whether that's the, you know, the sideway glance or why did you, like, why did you bring that up? Or... Either way, you just get a very strong response to it, and it's like, hey, I'm just, you know, I'm just bringing it up for the sake of conversation, or I'm bringing it up for the sake of learning more about it, and uh, it does not go the way that you had hoped, and so that's really what we want to do here on the Learners Corner: is to create a place for those types of conversations, for those difficult conversations that you just can't have with anyone or everyone, and really kind of another another theme or another. Uh, mantra, I guess, I don't like using that word, but uh, I guess it's appropriate, is that we really want to create a place to where we can learn from anyone and from everyone, because anyone and everyone has something to teach us. And sometimes that's a positive example. Sometimes that is the example of what not to do in some cases as well, but whatever it is, we can learn something from anyone and from everyone and really about anything and everything. And uh, this is a particular reason why I'm so excited to talk with Bill is because we're going to talk about something that, depending on uh, if you if you grew up in the church or if you grew up with some background in faith, that uh, we're going to talk about an intersection of psychology and Christianity, which isn't always thought to go together. But at least for me and my background and my understanding, um, it's something that I've realized that they don't have to be dichotomies for it that uh, that they do and can actually work together. Now, before we get into that, one of the things that I love to do is uh, if you really enjoy uh, the conversation, you know, there's the book that you can, you know, most of our author or most of the people on the podcast have a book that you can go ahead and pick up or, a, uh, or another resource as well, whether that's a podcast or a video series or something like that, that you could pick up as well. But if you're like me and you really enjoy the topic, you're just like, okay, so I really enjoyed this. You know, you listen to the conversation, maybe you listen to another p- couple of podcasts with uh, with a person and you pick up the book and you're like, okay, I really wanna learn more about this. That's why we have something like the Learner's Corner recommended resource of the week. And for the most part, I try to tie uh, what we're what we're covering or try to connect the resource to what we're covering. As well, and so one of the things that I wanted to uh recommend today is a video that I saw recently that I got uh sent to me by one of my friends, and it's uh in its a YouTube video, and it's from uh the account is Good Blood, and the video is called uh, Ocarina of Time a Masterclass in Subtext. Now, if you're not familiar with Ocarina of Time, it is a classic Nintendo 64 game con or a game for it's attached to The Legend of Zelda, which is uh, probably one of, uh, well, not probably, it is one of the greatest game franchises that has ever come out. And they did a video kind of analyzing the story, the, the text, and in this case, the subtext through it and pulling out some of the certain themes. And if you've played it before, uh, you know, it's a very fun game. It's one of uh, one of the best games that I played as a kid, and it still, in my opinion, still holds up today. It's a little bit uh, old stuff, old school with the with the controls and stuff. Uh, but they, anal- they analyze it and they look at it through the the lens of sorrow and how that plays a role, and how sorrow and sadness aren't really mentioned in there. However, it is a very uh, it is a very present theme throughout the game. It's about thirty minutes, and so I'm going to link to that in there, and one of the things that it just made me think about is how present emotions are in conversations, even if they don't seem apparent as well, and just the need for us to pay attention to that, and that's one of the reasons why I'm recommending it, uh, because one, I really enjoyed it, and two, here's how I see it connects to the conversation, is that a lot of psychology is dealing into the deeper, into the deepness of an understanding what is behind your actions, what is the motives and understanding what is really going on in there as well. So you can feel free to check it out. Also, I would love to hear uh, your thoughts from it. And the best way to reach out to me is uh, through our email address, which is Podcast at gmail.com. would love to hear from you uh, of any of your takeaways from previous episodes, from this episode, from the Learner's Corner resources, or anything that you have as well. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Bill before we dive into our conversation. Bill is the executive vice president for academic affairs at Regent University. He also is a professor and, and former dean of the School of Psychology and Counseling at Regent. He has written numerous articles and book chapters and is co editor of spiritual intervention spiritual interventions in child and adolescent psychotherapy. Now, without any further wait, here's my conversation with Bill Hathaway. Well, Bill, I am so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today.
1: So good to be here.
0: Yeah, and and just as we get started, like I know that uh, learning about psychology has been like a big part of your life, and I would just love to hear, like, when when did you first become interested in psychology? What drew and what drew you to that, and kind of what has been your journey through learning about psychology? So a couple steps to that
1: process.
0: So I grew up in the Midwest,
1: small blue collar family. Uh, but it was an unusual town—about 12,000 townspeople in this small Michigan town—and about the same number of college students at a local state tech university, about a about a mile from my house. So I had a rural town with a fairly substantial tech university. This meant that I was frequently just going up to the campus, hanging out in the library. High school I was in the astronomy club, so the astronomer there led a friend of mine and I in ninth grade run the observatory, and so it's. So I, I took all of that for granted, but it was really a time where I had access to all of the departments and programs there, really drawn to the sciences throughout my middle high school years and thought that's where I was going, the natural sciences. Um, but around that time, I had a Christian conversion experience. I had grown up in a liberal church, but was taught to not really take the Bible seriously, that the miracle stories were superstition. There wasn't even clarity about whether or not God really existed, that sort of thing. Um, And so that church was very good at making me wonder about things. The pastor was a brilliant liberal theologian, pastor who was great at asking questions about existentialism, what gives meaning to life. He really got me interested in philosophy and spiritual things, but they didn't really suggest that they had answers. So I was drawn to, this was the 70s, college campus, the various kinds of new age movements, the occult. Atheism. I'd go up and read books from the library from atheist philosophers. Uh, So that's my journey up until the time I met a friend who was a Baptist who actually believed his Bible. And so he challenged me. And for about six months, I asked him to give me everything he could to try to show he was right so I could show him he was wrong. So it was like C.S. Lewis, Francis Schaeffer, those folks. At the end of that six months, it started to dawn on me Christianity may not just be a set of questions, but actually a set of answers. Mm. So I went through a Christian conversion. At this time, it was the tail end of the Jesus movement, which was happening in Michigan about four or five years after it had crested in California. Um, So I was involved in a lot of contemporary Christian ministry. And as I started to have more of a a heart for people with this Christian conversion, I still had my interest in science, but then I started being drawn more to the social sciences or to the helping discipline. My boy scout master had been the chair of the psych department at that state university. I used to talk with him about psychology. My sister was a social worker who brought her psychology textbooks home. So I read that stuff, but it wasn't my first passion. That started to change. Planned on staying in contemporary Christian ministry. Um, after a year or so of that, though, the folks that were the leftover hippies at the end of the middle of the 70s said, you know, if we had to do all over again, we believe all you need is your Bible, you don't need formal college. But by starting our street ministries, we find that people don't take us seriously without a degree. So they told all of us young whippersnappers, that's a phrase they used to use, to go get a college degree so that people take it seriously and then just preach Jesus and don't worry about the college stuff. So I thought, sounds good. So this was three months before, a year out of high school before college started, I applied to Wheaton and Taylor. I'd heard from a Christian camp that Taylor had this interesting program in integrating psychology and Christianity. So I went there where I double majored in psychology and philosophy of religion, still with the goal of going back to street ministry But by the end of that, I became not only maintained my Christian faith, but I became a psychology true believer. I did feel philosophy was a missing piece in putting those two things together. So I went and did a master's program in applied philosophy. It's a new kind of area that connects philosophy to practical applications and other disciplines. I was able to apply it to psychology at Bowling Green State University. and While I was there, I worked with a Jewish psychologist who's one of the few folks in those secular settings to do research on religion and coping so my intention was to go to fuller or rosemead one of the christian programs at the time i felt the call to stay with him and i'm glad i did so i spent those years working on religion and coping with ken he had a lot of colleagues at fuller so i interacted with most of the fuller faculty they read my thesis made me redo analyses and so they were like on my committee without being at the university after that full-time clinician for several years in the air force felt the call to academia and this opening showed up at Regent, uh, a new Christian doctoral program. I came here in those years and I've been here since so that's been in 97. So I've continued to work in the profession and uh, training people but have continued this passion of looking at how psychology and Christianity can work together to provide a better response to human need to, to, uh, to give us answers that both disciplines are approaching. Both of them complement each other, I think, if if put together in the correct ways. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, it's a 40-year journey for me, 35. So that's the, the short version of that with some twists and turns along the way.
0: Yeah. Ta- take me back to, you know, whenever you whenever you first started, you know, uh, exploring and learning about psychology and just it like integrating that with your faith in Christianity as well and kind of what that process looked like. I was reading Francis Schaeffer, his
1: How Should We Then Live series, if you're familiar with that part of Christian apologetics history, just had come out, a film series in which he gave his approach to relating Christ to secular culture um, in the 70s. They showed the film, The university Group, at our local secular campus in my hometown. So I I watched that. I was drawn to his thinking. I was taking a high school psychology class. So this was my junior year, I think, in high school. I remember the professor, the faculty member, Dr. Uh, Mrs. Arndt was her name. She asked the question, what is normal? And so I was, you know, a six-month-old evangelical convert who was reading this stuff. My, my response to her was the kind of zeal that new Christians often have. I said, well, I think being normal is to be like Jesus Christ. So I'm saying this in a public secular high school. And she was very respectful. She answered back, yeah, but how many of us can live up to that? my response was well none of us but that's the point so none of us are normal none of us are what we should be uh but that's the standard of normality i understand the sense in which she meant it but this was that kind of passion of a new believer where i think christianity is the answer for everything very specifically and i still believe that but in a little bit more nuanced way than i did in my junior high year of high school so that started that journey and i read skinner i read Harry London. I read psychology at those times. I was drawn to. I was reading the books that were coming out to a local Christian bookstore on integration. Uh, So some of the pivotal texts. The 70s is when a lot of that early Christian literature, introducing psychology and theology and how to integrate them, was being published by Baker University, some of those publishers, and Zondervan. So, uh, so I read as much of that as I could before I made it to college, and it's really why I went to college to continue that that journey.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, you even saying that, it reminds me of something that I think you write about in the book is, you know, you talk about um, how, how there's two books that we learn from, you know, we learn from the yeah. Bible and we learn from the book of life as well. Can you just expound on that a little bit more? Because I think it just touches on so much of what you were yeah, talking this, about.
1: This old idea that was in uh, Francis Bacon's work at the, one of the early contributors to the scientific revolution, is that there are two books of nature Um, or two books of Revelation, I should say. One is Special Revelation, what God reveals to us miraculously in Scripture. The other is what he allows us to discover about himself and reality through nature. Now, there's a little more complexity to that. You have to believe God has given us the abilities to our natural resources to pick out that truth in nature. For those folks who believe these are both places where God has allowed us to receive truth, typically think because it's the same author of truth in both places, they won't ultimately disagree. And this motivated Christians in science, like a Michael Faraday, to do his work. It motivated people throughout, throughout really uh, the Western tradition to, to pursue serious psychology. People like Isaac Newton, who didn't always have Orthodox Christian beliefs, but he had a lot of them. We often know about inertia the, the Newtonian laws of physics the apple falling on his head and gravity we know that kind of stuff but what we don't know is that he wrote more theology religion stuff than he ever did science uh, we don't learn that in the public schools and he was studying nature like other people in the British royal Academy under the motto that if we understand how nature is put together we get a glimpse into the mind of God it's a way to think God's thoughts after him to use a phrase that they often quoted from from Kepler And so that that is the inspiration that I found too. I believed that God was the source of truth. That's why I wasn't afraid of where science would take us. Um, I knew that scientists may be biased just like anyone else. And if their worldview wasn't Christian, it may actually lead them in error. But I didn't expect the actual data, the rigorous data from reality, to ever disagree with biblical truth if it was rightly interpreted. So that's the journey I've been on. I will tell you there's been moments of tension. There's still some areas where I'm not quite sure how to put the two stories together, but by and large, it's been one affirmation after another that's deepened my faith when I've been open to the truth and worked through those areas of tension.
0: Can Can you expound on that? Just working through the tension, because I think in in you know all of us who who are on a faith journey, we experience that tension from time to time, and we have to live through how to, how to navigate it, and in some cases, how to live with it.
1: Yes. Well, you know, for me, an interest in philosophy that I followed somewhat in psychology as well is where does the mind come from, the nature of consciousness? This is a huge debate. Uh, It looks like the more we learn about the brain, the further we are from a complete answer. And in fact, a number of skeptics and naturalists who believe all we are is our physical body are getting more and more pessimistic about the idea of ever accounting fully for consciousness from the brain itself. However, the way those things seem to fit together, what we're learning about the brain, what we're learning about a consciousness, I think fits pretty well into a Christian view of the person. And it doesn't surprise me that there is a part of us that can't be reduced to just our biology or its functioning. Uh, even though I think biology is an important part of who we are in ways, maybe sometimes Christians under underappreciate because of our focus on spiritual concerns. And so both of those things work together for me In ways that are are helpful. But also just I've engaged people in my graduate studies, particularly in secular programs, that I knew would have very different views from me. Largely because I grew up in this liberal unbelieving background. I didn't want to believe in Christianity even after I was a Christian, if I was just being misled. Mm. So when I was in the early psych program, Anthony Flew, who was at that time one of the world's leading atheist philosophers, came to our university as a visiting scholar. So I sought him out. We created a tutorial. We read through a defense of the Christian faith by an Oxford professor. And we just met every week and talked through it. Uh, so one-on-one. So if anyone could get rid of my Christian beliefs that they were false, I would think it would be him. And I ended up being challenged by him, but in the end, feeling much stronger my faith, having worked through that journey with him. And I, I would see this again and again with people I engaged that were from a very different perspective than me. So I've not been afraid to submit my faith to the test. It's not that I don't have conviction. I think the other mistake sometimes, particularly young Christians can make, particularly in the age of learning from the internet, is to have beliefs that are like a windmill. Whichever way the wind blows, your beliefs change. The reality is no worldview, having been in a skeptical perspective for a part of my life, I can relate to this. No worldview is without challenge. So if you think that the second your worldview runs into some turbulence, it's time to give it up or to hold it less tentatively, but you'd be constantly being in turmoil throughout your life. It's just not human. The way the way some of the early um, existentialists or William James put it, having these ultimate beliefs is kind of a forced choice. We can't just live in a holding pattern. A friend of mine who was uh, an interesting philosopher, agnostic shared an office with me in, in a philosophy program. Um, Wasn't was someone who thought this? He was an agnostic, and remember sitting down with him one day and challenging him about whether or not he could really be an agnostic practically. So that's a kind of interesting idea to hold as a theoretical possibility. But if there is a God of the sort that Christianity teaches, or any of the other major religions, a divine being, we're not really given the option of saying, "I'll get around to you when you convince me you're real." Right? Where all of those systems suggest there are. Accountability implications to us not living in deference or in obedience to that divine being right now. So, so it simply isn't an existential option that we can live in uncertainty, even if we have it. It's, uh, William James called it a forced choice. So, I said an analogy I sometimes use in my classes um, when I've taught this for philosophy is imagine you're on some road in the Arctic in the winter, and your truck breaks down. You know that you'll probably die frozen to death if you don't make it to town, but you're at a fork in the road and you don't remember which way takes you to town. All you know is when you walk far enough to get there, if you're wrong, you won't be able to make it back. So you could just sit there and say, well, because I don't know what the right option is, I'm going to just sit here till I figure it out. But that means you're dead for sure. Hmm. So life is often like that. We are forced with choices on some of these ultimate matters. And even when there is room for doubt, I think the evidence favors a Christian view, but even when there's true, honest room for doubt that often we encounter in the course of our life, there isn't really room to live in an uncommitted way, not with the nature of what's at stake.
0: Yeah. So. What? Yeah. I I, I would love just your thoughts on, but yeah, I think we do feel like we still have like a, uh, I don't know, the the thing that it made me think of was, you know, I think, Uh, We can tend to have, and I know this is, this has definitely been my story from time to time is, you know, you have these doubts or you have these questions and it's almost like you're afraid to ask the question because you go like, if I, if I, if I start down this path, you know, all of it might, you know, as you were saying, my worldview might fall apart. Is there like, what, what is that? Like, does that, and how does that tie back into like the, the psychology piece of it?
1: So there's a philosophical and a psychological response to what you're wondering about. Um, There are people who are troubled by doubts that are irrational, not only about this, about whether or not they turned off the lights in their house and they have to go back and check 10 times. And If that's a ritual that interferes with the being of the function, that can be an obsessive compulsive disorder. Okay, So that's a kind of doubt that isn't reality based. It's tied to anxiety issues and other kinds of patterns. That probably requires psychological treatment, not so much an intellectual answer. On the other hand, uh, living as we do as humans, without having God's mind, even though God reveals things to us, we still have our human minds, there is opportunity for us to be uncertain about some things or have incomplete information. Os Guinness wrote a great book called, um, let's see, I'm forgetting what the original title was, It's from the 70s the dust of the mind or something like that. But but at any rate, in this book, he talks about the different biblical words we often translate as doubt in English. And there is a word that is a kind of willful rejection of what we should really believe. That's, that's a word, opostuo. It's the opposite of the word for faith. So it's unfaith. And that's a willful rejection of something because you just don't want to believe it or whatever reason you're rebelling against it. That's something that we're fully accountable for. But there's another word for for doubt, diacrino, which means to divide the mind. And this kind of word for doubt is also the same word that's translated other places as, as discernment. So to test the spirits to see if they're of God or to, as the Bereans did, test what the Apostle Paul was preaching to see if it's correct, we have to entertain the possibility that it may not be. But this doesn't mean you're committed to rejecting it. You haven't decided to live with disregard for the message. Instead, you're entertaining the idea and sorting it through. That's actually a discerning mind, and that's something we're enjoying to have, as opposed to the the person who deliberately sort of, or has a kind of spiritual journey where they rebel against truth, either subconsciously or consciously. Those are two different forms. I think, though, if we feel like we have to hide doubt, that usually tends to amplify it, and it makes it stronger. We do know that research on children show That often in the early pre adolescent years is when many of their doubts come forward in religious contexts, but they often don't voice them till later, which means they're left to happenstance for how they get those doubts dealt with, which may not be the best pastoral strategy, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. so if you're not going to go to a healthy youth leader who can guide you through the process, then you might pick up the answer from the internet. And on the internet, there's a whole lot of worldviews represented in ways that are not balanced or that in much larger perspective than they actually are in the human race. Mm-hmm. And so for instance atheism the relative percentage of the population that's explicitly atheist has remained relatively stable for decades but if you were to look at the internet you would think it's like this explosion of ideas uh, and it's really not grown dramatically in the last several decades um, from our best data but yet we have this impression from that cyber world that it has and so we don't want our young people to be left to that kind of false kind of impression that explains uh, that that could create to, for them. And that's why I think it's good to create context where we can openly engage discussion. I like what you're doing with your podcast mm-hmm. as a way to do that.
0: Uh, I think you bring up a very good scenario, which is which is so uh, relevant because of the internet, and because so much information is out there right now. I think it I think it can. Um, Easily influence us and easy easily persuade us. Uh, how do you go about having conversations with people who are like, hey, I, you know, and and it could be, hey, I read this book, I listen to this podcast. Yeah. Um, and how do you, how do you go about navigating the conversations with someone who is like, hey, I am I am adopting this worldview, which is different than the one that you tend to have.
1: Yeah. So it depends on the person and what my relationship is. I mean, so as a philosopher pre-teacher sometimes. I had teach philosophy still at some military campuses for years then a local state university as a side job. Um, So there we will often have intellectual discussions. But if I'm on a plane or I'm talking to someone who's a a peer in my professional association, it depends on the nature of the relationship. In those moments where you really can have an open, honest conversation, I try to follow them relationally. Uh, If I really Sense that someone hasn't thought it through very well. I'll typically be more Socratic. I'll ask them questions to try to call out areas where their beliefs don't even agree with other beliefs they hold. You know, how do these things fit together? Um, Francis Schaeffer. I really. I, I know he's not a technically proficient philosophical theologian, but he was a great evangelist, and he had he had his his pulse on. He had his finger on the pulse of the postmodern mind, even before it was called that. What he was good at doing is something he called taking the lid off, which is, okay, if you think this, what does that mean about this? He basically takes someone with a non-Christian worldview and, and helps them see what the logical end of that worldview is. If you believe that the Christian worldview is reality, you shouldn't be worried about that because any other worldview carried to its logical end requires someone to live split against reality. And So you let, the, you let their own experience be their best debater Uh, But you help them think through where does that leave you, where does that take you? He gives a number of examples of that in his books. I think that strategy has worked well for me over the years talking to to folks. Mm
0: -hmm. So I was going to say, and that just and we've we've briefly touched on it, but you cover it so much. Uh, You and Mark cover it so much in the book. Is just the role that integration plays about in in our whole being, you know, uh, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Can you just talk about the importance of Integration and why is it so hard for us to be integrated people, it feels like?
1: Yeah, there's lots of layers of integration there. But let me just start with the integration of faith and learning. Yeah, That's a way of talking that really gained momentum in the 50s and 60s and 70s, largely in conservative Christian contexts, but in some other places as well. And the main reason for that is historical accident. As the universities became secular and Christians wanted to engage culture, that meant they had to find a way to take their Christian worldview and put it back together with disciplines that had become secular. Now some people that are critics of that integration project say well those approaches have gone so far down the path as a non-Christian approach to biology or psychology or anything else that we just need to scrap it and start from a Christian starting point. I will let you know I'm fine with that if you want to do it. If you want to build all of a all of what's done in the last couple of centuries of world over through these secular research paradigms if you want to build an alternative that's as richly informed by god's world go ahead be my guest i have a friend who's doing something like that from a christian theology perspective in psychology he's trained as a psychologist but he's championing a christian psychology project i look forward to the work he's doing i myself found value in psychology and in science and i wanted to be a psychologist but i also wanted to be a christian who was a faithful disciple so for me, that meant I had to figure out how to put those two things together. And I haven't found it impossible to do that. I've been found that there's valuable insights that I think are true, that I think are part of the way God made us, that come through psychology. And I would be leaving a great deal behind if I, if I just scrapped that all to start with my Christian convictions alone. That would have taken me back to where I was in that street ministry when I was 18, before the person said, you know, go get your college degree so i would have been just there i think i probably would have helped people i'm not saying psychology adds to salvation or anything of that sort it doesn't but it is part of the resources god gives us to help people uh, that we have this ability to discover things about how people deal with trauma what helps them do better with trauma um things like that that psychology has given us a light on
0: You saying that just made me think of what, what would you say are some of the biggest things that you have gained a greater understanding through that have, that have added to your faith as well through psychology. And I would be curious about on the philosophy side of things as well. Well, from
1: psychology, I think in every area of psychology, some developmental psychology, how we develop over the lifespan, uh, how we cope with problems in life that comes out of community psychology and health psychology, what makes us healthy, Um, what is psychopathology, when do we go wrong, and how can we help people get better with that? Again and again and again, I find lessons that bring me back to a Christian vision. So in recent years, uh, some Christians and and a number of non-Christians have tried to move psychology away from focusing on pathology when people are mentally ill to our strengths, are character traits like, like uh faith or gratitude or hope. And they've seen that cultivating those strengths helps produce a lot of really good things for people. Well, it turns out that the virtues they're trying to cultivate align very well with the Christian vision of what life should be. And so that's why some Christians are in that space. People like Bob Emmons, who just retired, that was a professor for years at UC Davis and a Christian editor of the journal Positive Psychology. It's been a lot of research on things like gratitude so so psychologists even non-christian psychologists are studying how cultivating gratitude leads to all kinds of better mental health outcomes Um, so that's a vision of life that comes closer to the christian ideal Um, it seems like this to me in place after place after place the way that we seem to be foundationally relational persons and agents fits the christian vision for me uh, of the way the bible presents us as people But there's no good accounting for it on a secular natural worldview. So that led some people to try to create a reaction movement. People like Carl Rogers, Abraham Maslow called humanistic psychology. But their approach ran into problems because the places where they got it right, that we have agency, that we're persons that should be treated with dignity, I think fit a biblical worldview of us being made in the image of God. But the places where they got wrong, that there isn't something fundamentally broken in us still that needs to be redeemed is what led them down a path that wasn't helpful. And That's exactly what you would expect from a biblical worldview. And so, and when you look at the amazing complexity of the way we're made to allow us to be relational persons. So I I remember a student in our, one of our biological bases class in one of our graduate programs came in as an atheist here at Regent. The professor was just teaching about how this, how we're put together and how it seems so providential the way we're made. Uh, that person accepted christ and prayed the prayer of salvation based on the amazing providence that seemed to be present in the way we're made well biological bases studying the way the brain's put together the way our nerve cells fire it isn't normally what you think of as converting people to christianity it's you know it's a pretty straight science kind of program but you know when you approach that with an appreciation for the kind of complexity the brain reveals it can be an awe-inspiring experience. And for me, those sorts of things play out that way. Mm-hmm. So, uh,
0: and can you talk on the philosophy side of things of what you've gained through learning about that and how it, you know, Yeah, so your faith? I,
1: I became more and more convinced that Christianity was true. Now, the short answer that you often hear from people in apologetics, defense of the faith, is they'll, they'll try out their favorite argument. This is how we know the resurrection happened. This is how we know that there had to be a God who caused the universe. I think all of those things have value. But at Taylor, we took a history of philosophy, of course. It's more European like. So we studied philosophy in, in a broad survey as it developed through history. And one of the things that be, I became aware of in doing that is that in every age, whatever the dominant challenges were to faith, God sort of raised up Christian thinkers who showed how a Christian take on that works. When you think about Christianity, in all the different cultural forms it's existed in, finding a viable way to present itself to the mind, despite all those different worldview things. But for me, that's almost kind of like an evolutionary proof of Christianity, that you have a worldview that can function well, and despite whatever window on truth people can come up with throughout all of human history, that's amazing to me. Um, it's not exactly a philosophical argument, but one thing that that really resonated with me along that regard is in 2012, I was part of a delegation to bring a psychology of religion focus to the new sociology of religion conferences that were happening in China. So these were in Beijing, and so this was the first time there were five of us from the states there talking about psychology of religion. But the dean of of the university that Mao created, Renmin University, took us around to meet some of the religious leaders in Beijing. So we met the head of the the, um, the head lama at one of the uh, the one of the temples we met, the head of the Taoist order, um, the doctoral association of Taoist monks. We also met with the archbishop, the Catholic head of the Catholic church in China, the oldest Catholic church that was formed. He told me a story about how until the 1990s after Vatican II, when it was okay for churches to give the mass in the language of the people um, that it was, something they weren't allowed to do. Their their Catholic structure was cut off from contact with the Vatican, and they didn't know it was okay. So as late as the 1990s, you had routinely Catholics in China worshiping God in Christian churches in the language of the Roman Empire. Now, why does that matter? Well, what, what it impressed me about is the staying power of Christianity, that something that became so convincing in an empire that's been so long gone continues to be persistent and have forms in places as different as Beijing, China, post-Maoist China in the late 20th century. And so, so there are lots of answers. I've had a chance to study with people like Anthony Flew, prominent atheist, and I ended up being quite convinced at the end of those journeys that Christianity holds its candle to anything that the skeptics can bring about. I also was quite impressed when you take someone who's really serious about atheism, not in the sense of being a militant political advocate, but someone who's really gone into it deep, how thoughtful and respectful they were and challenged by biblical faith. So Tony Flew, for instance, the atheist told me that he was often um, quite caught, quite struck, struck back by how naive American atheists were, that they didn't realize how serious the challenge was to their atheism from serious Christian thought. He, by the way, wrote, a paper as an undergraduate at Oxford in philosophy that became one of the most cited philosophy papers in the last part of the 20th century. He wrote that paper that he gave as a lecture in the Socrates Club that C.S. Lewis ran. And C.S. Lewis helped him strengthen the paper, even though they disagreed about the answers. Wow. So, And so he was very respectful of yeah. serious Christian scholars, even though England has a much more secular culture he, he always knew people like Lewis that were serious defenders of the faith. In America, we have a much more religious culture, but much of our academia is naive in their atheism. They're very confident that they're right and very naive about the basis for why they should or shouldn't feel that way. Mm-hmm. That's what I encountered in in my journey of uh, 12 years of graduate school, just about. So just journeying through that. So it's it was uh, my experience is that that you didn't have to worry if you allowed answers to be dealt with openly. I'm not saying I always had an easy answer. I didn't. But but at the end of that journey, the direction of the evidence never seemed to favor unbelief for me. So,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, and it, it even makes me think of um, what you were talking about of of the naiveness of it. And even going like, I think there's even a, a, a naiveness. In terms of our faith, sometimes of just of just realizing that our our answer is much more solid than what I think we tend to think that it is.
1: Yeah, and I don't think I think Alvin Plantinga as a philosopher has given us some good philosophical basis for this. But I don't think the everyday believer has to first read through all of Aquinas and become you know a doctorate in philosophy before they can give an answer. But some Mm -hmm. of the Bible says, yeah, I think there is good reason to believe based on our own blue-collar, plebeian, everyday life, uh, and for those folks who can answer questions in a way where a different kind of answer is needed, which isn't everyday people, yeah, then I think God has given us people that can do that. and That was already present in the Bible, right? I mean, yeah. we, we saw people just, I don't know what happened. I just know I couldn't walk before and now I can. And that's all they were told to do is just yeah. tell their story versus people like Paul who could give answers about how Christianity fulfills the biblical tradition or something like that. Yeah. And so I, I think God calls us to all be in the roles we're given. And there are, it is rational to believe in faith based on the best evidence you have, um, even if you don't have the formally trained mind. Now, it doesn't mean I don't value formal training, but I, yeah. I do. But I, I just think that um, sometimes it's it's an easy game is for someone to read some philosophy that the the blue collar people with them in the factory mm-hmm. have never read, and then to feel smug. And you know, trying to shame them by not knowing any philosophy. that's yeah, that's that's intellectual gainsmanship. That's not really searching truth. Yeah. so
0: I was gonna say, and Paul talks about that knowledge that puffs up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, one, one other thing that I wanted to um, ask you about as, uh, as we're moving towards the end is I, I would love your thoughts on what are some of the big uh, questions either that you're seeing in philosophy right now or it could just be psychology, um, But really just some of the big questions that you're seeing that like, hey, you know, as the church or as Christians, like we're going to need to start thinking through these things because they're the prominent of the day. Well, given
1: the nature of our text, let me focus on psychology for a minute. Yeah. It's not anything new, but it's gained a new kind of urgency. I think one of the things Christians have to continue to think through is how do we deal with issues of sex and gender? from a biblical standpoint. The world has a narrative and that narrative is really nothing new. It's an extension of the sexual revolution of the 1920s and 60s, but it has now gained a scope of, of cultural influence that if you hold a traditional biblical sexual ethic, uh, it's you are automatically in a one down position. And it's, it's very difficult to hold that view without being viewed as bigoted or hateful, which I don't think we should be. I think there's ways to hold a traditional sexual ethic just like we did in the ancient greco-roman world when christianity was very unpopular for centuries without being judgmental or or hostile or inhospitable to people um, there's ways to work through that but we have to understand the basis for why people hold these views and what their justifications are if we know that and there's some good books coming out that do this a book by mary Aberstadt recently some others there's some good books that focus heavily on this, the work my colleague Mark Yarhouse has done around sexual identity and gender identity. Those kinds of things all help us think through a Christian response to these topics that is both empirically valid, compassionate, but also biblically faithful. I, I think a lot of us want to put our head in the sand and just take a culture war posture that's based on World War I. You know, we dig our trench, pop our heads up to shoot to the other side and go back down into our trench again that's not gonna get us anywhere. So it won't even keep us safe in the church because young people will know there's something insincere about that. And they'll be drawn to the other side because we won't have given them a thoughtful response. And that's what's happening, of course. And so I think that, I think we need to develop a good empirically grounded and informed, but thoroughly biblically faithful and sophisticated sexual ethic that's a response to the sexual revolution. Culture war is part of that at times, unfortunately. There are political battles to be fought through the courts for our right to exist, for instance, as Christian colleges operating consistent with our biblical worldview. But if all we do is fight the culture war, I think that's a lost cause. That's just not, that we need to do more than that. I think pastors and youth pastors need to do more than that. So that's why I'm glad for folks like Mark Airhouse that are speaking into this, but I think we're just starting to develop An effective narrative to respond. There were intellectuals, even in the early days of that sexual revolution, or going back to ancient Greece that responded to the Epicureans that promoted similar ideas. They're in philosophy, they're in theological ethics, but we don't have the pastoral responders who are informed by that well yet, and at a large numbers. And I think that's that's a big need right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Beyond that, I think being proactive And so we can do all the intellectual arguments we want, but there's a huge mental health crisis in the world, and there's no way to train enough professionals to meet that need. The church is still, religious organizations, but in particular Christian churches in the West, are still the largest way that people naturally encounter people for help when they're going through times of life trauma or crisis. If we were better at providing mental health care, uh, in a lay level, it doesn't have to mean everyone becomes professional, but we found better ways to do that. And we do have some good examples of this, but if we were able to do what the Benedictines did at say 1000 AD, where they literally created the hospital system in Europe. If we we did that kind of thing and became the provider of mental health care, these intellectual culture wars would all be by the wayside. because so people would say, look, I don't care what you say about them. That's where I go for help. They give me the cup of water when I'm dying of thirst, right? And that's the way we win the culture war. It's not, again, I'm for good arguments. I like intellectual stuff. This is, no you know, from my philosophy journal, but that's not going to win us the culture war. It's going to be us doing what Christ did and caring for people with the, the love of Christ. I'm not saying we don't need to have the intellectual answers too. We need both. But what's going to win the masses is us being there to help them in their time of need.
0: Yeah, that's really good. Uh, I, I had never really thought of it that way—that um, that what we're going through with mental health could be very similar to, you know, what they went through, you know, hundreds of years ago with the hospitals as well. Yeah. yeah. So there literally was no
1: hospital system like we know it now until the yeah. church invented it. Uh, and then of, course, of course, they had medieval science to rely on, so they had some work to do. But still, they were the ones there, uh, in formal and formal ways. And I think we could. Make especially in countries where there is no mental health system, we could be the provider. And if we do that globally and come around the professional community and provide amplifications of support here in places like America or Europe, where there is a mental health system, but where it can't even scratch the the size of the need closely to meeting it, then I think we have the opportunity to make a huge impact. Mm -hmm. So that would be our applied integration. It would also be part of our Spiritual journey. I think community psychology had a vision for this, but that was in the 1960s when Kennedy's community mental health movement took off, and people thought the answer would be to have professional organizations in every community. that proved unsustainable, and even with the most healthy versions of those, they still can't meet the need. The need is just too great. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so, one one other thing that I wanted to ask you about, and actually, I want to read uh, a quote from the book, and then I I want. To get your take on it. One of the things that really stood out to me was this. It says, you know, uh, you write, Christians believe in an all-knowing God who never errs in his knowledge. God's truth is truth about the way things really are, but God's perfect, absolute knowledge, even when revealed to us through inerrant scripture, does not imply infallible human understanding of the truth. And like, one of the things that I've just been thinking about is, uh, you know, I think as As people, we could tend to think that we have a a monopoly on the truth is there uh, I would just love your thoughts first of all of like how does that tie back if it's so how does that tie back into the psychology piece of it and how can we be proactive towards um towards fighting against that that idea that we have a monopoly on the truth
1: so I would say this. I would actually say we do have a monopoly on the truth and that God's revealed truth is absolutely true. But what I'm challenging there is our theology, our understanding. of And so if we run into tension with science and science persistently says something that seems to go against our beliefs, it doesn't mean we automatically should reject our beliefs, especially if you study the history of science and see how confidently they believe something that the next century, no one knows why they believed it. Uh, So That's true often in the history of science. But having said that, sometimes the church corrects its understanding. It has historically. um, And it turns out that we don't find it inconsistent with God's revealed truth. We find our prior interpretation inconsistent. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the tension we have. Now, for folks to believe that God's truth is so clear that we essentially get most of the important things right, they're a little less comfortable with what I'm saying. There, what my colleague is saying, I think, I think we get enough of it right that I sound very much like an evangelical or, in certain days and certain moods, a, a fundamentalist on the basics of the Christian faith. I'm willing to be pretty confident that Jesus is the only way to heaven and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so, but there are other things where I'm not so sure we're as clear, and most of the tension points aren't around foundational christian beliefs most of them are how we relate those to culture and other sorts of things um gender issues are a big one so i do have problems with the current transgender movement as as it's developed i probably have more issues with it than mark does on the other hand i don't know that an idea that that the bible teaches us male and female and that means something like a 1950s ozzy and harriet gender role models um, is exactly biblical either. So I don't think that's the case. I think the story is more complex than that. And clearly there are intersexual people. They're not who, most of who people are talking about when they are talking about transgendered individuals, but there are people that are born with physical and and genetic characteristics, physical characteristics of both both uh, sexes. So those are more complex cases. And so that may even be the kind of person that the Bible was referencing when it talked about eunuchs being born from birth that way. So we don't know. But that's a much smaller percentage. So the story is a little more complex than I think some of our conservative responses to the transgender movement suggests. Unfortunately, right now, that's a great example of an area of the culture war where you have to be on one side or the other. If you stand in the middle like Mark often does, then you get shot at from both sides. <laughs> um, but that's that's the that requires some humility in how we approach these things. Even if we fundamentally disagree with someone, are we willing to listen to them long enough to know how to respond to them? And again, I don't think we need to hold our Christian faith tentatively. I mentioned earlier, I don't think you can really practically hold your ultimate beliefs tentatively, but you can still seriously listen
0: yeah.
1: and entertain the ideas of someone you disagree with.
0: Yeah. Well, I know that we've covered a lot. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure that we cover? So I would just say we've had this heavy
1: philosophical kind of version of the book. And for anyone who's interested in the text, we do get practical. We have chapters that talk about how you grow personally while you're navigating this journey, a chapter on how you do clinical work as a as a Christian, if you're in those secular mental health professions, we try to engage those things. I do think there's been an explosion of integration work the last couple of decades, in particular, on how to do effective therapy from a in a Christian way. And Uh, we touch base on that. We're not really trying to break new ground as much as we are trying to summarize 50 years of a project here that lots of people have been contributing to that. And we think there's been some progress made, although we have a long ways to go.
0: Yeah. Well, Bill, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. I know that people are going to, I mean, by the time that this conversation has come out, the book is out. Where's the best place for people to go to get the book and to keep up with you as well? Okay. Well, InterVarsity
1: is the publisher, so you could get it directly from them. It's also on Amazon and the other usual suspects for distributing books. Um, So Mark's work, he has an institute, so he's doing a lot of active work. Uh, I will occasionally publish things, but I'm more and more over on the dark side of administration these days. So I'm not doing quite as much as I did, but here at Regent University, you can usually find me here or things that I'm doing. So
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Uh, It's my pleasure. So thank you. So coming out of that conversation with Bill, one of the things that has really stuck with me for, uh, you know, since we ended up talking is the idea of how he said of how the church can play a role in, in helping facilitate people become mentally healthier as well, and how it can have the same effect or potentially have the same effect as hospitals did. In, in the day, which led to a rise in Christianity. And you know, for me, being a person of faith, that's something that stands out uh, to me in that of just thinking about that, because ultimately it is an expression of love, which is what the Christian faith is about. Uh, and is really one of the core tenets, if not the core tenet of the faith. And so that's one of the things that it's got me thinking about. Also, at the same time, just realizing that that doesn't mean that we have to be that the church, you know, the capital C church, whatever uh, doesn't have to be the answer for everything. Sometimes we're the people or we're the place that can point people towards other resources as well. And other people who do a much better job at the mental health side of things, because there's a lot of training and, and schooling and teaching and learning that goes into that field as well. And I think, attached to that thought is also realizing that the church is bigger than a building. It's bigger than pastors. It's bigger than church staff as well. That the capital C church is about the people of God, is about uh, Christians, is about followers of Jesus as well. And us being willing to expand that definition as well of what the church actually looks like. So that's one of the things that this conversation got me thinking about. I would love hear from you of any of your feedback, any guests or uh, podcasts or recommended resources that you have as well. And the best way to reach out to me is through this email, Learners Corner, Gmail, or Learners Corner podcast at gmail.com. It will be a link in the show notes as well that you can reach out for that. Uh, if this happens to be your first time listening to the podcast, super grateful that you've decided to listen. You can I would very much appreciate it if you would leave a rating and write a review of the podcast to help spread the word and get it out there as well. I think that is all for today. I want to say thanks to Bill for being on the podcast. Thanks to Garrett Oler for doing the editing of the podcast. Thanks to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. And thank you, the listener, for listening all the way to the end of this podcast. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.